0: An investor's investor.
1: Weird.
0: Always thinking.
1: Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukomnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists. To see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today, on Outside In, we're particularly pleased to have Professor Robert Eccles of the Said Business School at Oxford and a longtime professor at the Harvard Business School. Bob is the founding chairman of the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, or SASB, now part of the International Sustainability Standards Board. He is a founder of the International Integrated Reporting Council and the award-winning author of a dozen books, including several works on integrated reporting, sustainability, and the role of business in society. A prolific writer for both academic and practitioner office audiences, he has his own column on Forbes.com, which is must-read. Bob's passion and intellectual prowess means he's often at the center of the most important cross-cutting issues for investors, businesses, and society. In fact, I can best describe Bob's role using an old Yiddish word. He's a tummler. A tummler is most commonly a professional entertainer whose function is to encourage an audience and guests to participate in the activities. But at its root, being a tummler means being a person who makes things happen. That is Professor Robert Eccles. Bob, welcome to Outside
0: In. Thanks, John. And uh, listen, people can't see, but I love your beard, man. And and thanks for the Yiddish lesson. I mean, I know a little bit of Yiddish from watching a lot of Woody Allen movies, but Tumblr, I didn't know, so I'm gonna add that to my vocabulary.
1: So aside from watching Woody Allen movies, what's your origin story? We, We find that interesting people often have had interesting lives. How did you become the person you are today?
0: Well, I'm 71. It's a long story. I'll try and make it brief. So it's kind of a weird story. When I was a kid, I really liked science fiction. I read a lot of science fiction. I read this foundation trilogy by Isaac Asimov, it's a guy named Harry Selden. who was a so-called psycho historian, did mathematical models, you know, of the future. And that sounded like a good gig. So I go to MIT and I major in math and history, and I think I'm going to do that. Um, but there really wasn't a job like that. And I wasn't good enough to be a pure mathematician. So I went to Harvard and got my PhD in sociology with a guy named Harrison White. who's a mathematical sociologist, brilliant guy, undergraduate degrees and a PhD in quantum physics from MIT, then a PhD from Princeton in sociology. So when I went to Harvard, I thought I was going to be, okay, I'm going to do kind of use algebraic topology to study urban social structure. was kind of the notion going in. But, you know, I've always been poor and had to work my way through MIT and I needed a job, you know, when I went to Harvard. So I got a job with this like one person consulting company that specialized in the construction industry. That was my introduction to business. It was actually my introduction to measurement and accounting because a lot of what we did was just put in cost accounting systems for construction companies, which were different than manufacturing. And I noticed patterns in subcontracting between the general contractors and the subcontractors. That led to my doctoral dissertation. It was kind of one of the first things in economic sociology. Got a job at Harvard Business School in organizational behavior. And again, I had this interest in the measurement reporting. So my first book was on transfer pricing, uh, 300 pages, nobody in their right mind writes 300 pages on transfer pricing. Met my wife on a blind date, spent the whole time talking about my book on transfer pricing, miraculously enough, she dated me again and we got married. I think it was mercy dating. She thought I was going to get fired from Harvard. So I did that. And then as an associate professor, um, again, long story, I did a book on investment banks. So I learned how investment banks work. And I remember going to Citibank meeting with us back in the early 90s, and it was still a big deal. And people would sit there and a shoe shine boy would come in and shoe shine their shoes and all this stuff. This guy goes, you know, I'm looking for different metrics. The financial stuff is the rearview mirror. Kind of like, you know, is it customers or something? And then, oh, it's interesting. And I kind of came across that a couple more times. So I wrote a piece called The Performance Measurement Manifesto. It was a year before Bob Kaplan wrote his much better articulated article on the balanced scorecard. Um, and it was, okay, companies should start measuring the so-called non-financial stuff. I mean, the term ESG wasn't around, the term sustainability wasn't around. I had a little line in there, you know, and maybe the SEC will kind of look at this stuff. And this was like in 19... 19- 91, I mean, it was a long time ago, right? When I published this thing. So I kind of rattled around, you know, in that for a while. And then I did a survey because I was interested in this issue of the non-financial information. So with a doctoral student did a survey that nobody had ever done before. It wasn't particularly sophisticated in terms of design, but we had a list of like 10 things and it was very high level, human capital, intellectual capital, customer loyalty, R and D. And we did the sell side, the buy side and companies. And we asked the sell side and the buy side, does, do you think this stuff matters? Are you getting the information from the companies? Yeah, it matters. We're not getting it from the companies. Companies go, yeah, it matters. You know, our systems aren't very good. We don't report it and the investors don't care. So we saw this sort of finger pointing. The companies are saying that they think it's important. They're sort of doing it. Investors are saying they really are. That really got me down this road to reporting.
1: You went through a lot of iterations there where you're trying to improve corporate reporting be a little more forward looking, what matters, what used to be called non-financial information, by which you mean stuff that's not on the financial statements, not things that they do have financial impacts, obviously. And you've worked with financial standards, so there's sustainability standards, so there's, um, everyone's trying to make incremental improvements. Let me turn this around and ask it to you in this way. Okay. Poof, you are now the world's standard center on disclosure. If you were starting with a blank slate, and the force of law and you're the corporate reporting czar with the ability to have all public, private, B corps, nonprofit corporations, everyone report according to the Eccles rules. Wow. What would that look like? Wow.
0: That's a great question. I've never thought about it that way. I don't have that expansive of a mind, John. So, you know, let me kind of pause and soak this in that, you know, I kind of, I'm the dictator of the world for corporate reporting. So if I had to paint a broad brush. I think you need to kind of take a step back from reporting. And I'd want to look at company law because right now you have company law and John, you do a lot of work in this in your own regard that, you know, it's basically shareholder value creation. The board's duty isn't just to maximize short-term shareholder value, but you know, we've got a role of the corporation that was kind of established in the late 19th century, you know, here's the corporate form. And I think we'd need to take a look at that and say, you know, why do corporations exist? and the kind of current financial economics ideologies that exist to make money for shareholders. Nothing wrong with that, but should there be additional expectations on part of companies that are given the license to operate to deal with the negative externalities that they're creating of their products and services? So now we're kind of making the distinction between single and double materiality, and maybe we can come back to that. So I think if you really want to address the things that are happening in the world today and you recognize the economic concentration, in these very large companies, we need to take a step back and look at corporate form because I think people are trying to expect too much out of standards, the single double materiality debate. You're still kind of operating within an institutional structure of company law that's defined in a certain way. But let's say I can't make the kind of company law changes, but I still want to have standards. I think within the kind of company laws we have today, I'm good with single materiality, the approach of SASB, what the ISSB is doing. Can you just define single materiality for the listeners? Sure. Sorry about the, <laughs> the buzzword. So single materiality is basically what are those ESG or sustainability issues? And we'll probably get into that distinction that matter to shareholder value creation. So you could be doing a good job on single materiality. You're an oil and gas company and you know, you're not doing flaring and you know, people aren't dying on the oil rigs and you know, you're not kind of wasting water, but you're still producing only gas. It's got a lot of emissions in the products that are used. And so the double materiality says, well, we need to look at what the impact of the company is having on society, single materialities. What are those issues that companies need to pay attention to? Hitting them from the outside laws, regulations, social expectations that affect their ability to create value for shareholders. The double materiality is what are those externalities, positive or negative, often negative. That while they're creating shareholder value, they're making a world a better, worse place. They're not breaking the law. They're not going to jail. It's just these institutional structures they're operating in. And so that's the big debate with the ISSB. SASB was single materiality because the SEC's mission is what information do investors need, it's to protect investors. That doesn't mean other stakeholders are important. So I'd say I'd want to have the international sustainability standards board there'd be a global baseline, it would be used by U.S. companies, it would be used by European companies. If Europe, through its Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, wants to have double materiality, which they do with their European Financial Reporting Advisory Group and their Sustainability Reporting Board, I think that's fine. The IFRS Foundation and its ISSB, they can't mandate the application of these standards. They are a standard creator. Governments have to mandate it. So if I've got this magic wand as the dictator of the sustainability reporting world, it would be every country in the world would say, you're gonna use the standards of the ISSB. And whether you're a public company or whether you're a private company, you have to report on this. Then I'd say we need to pay attention to the double materiality. And that's why I think the work of Global Reporting Initiative is important because there's this notion of dynamic materiality. We've talked about things that don't matter to shareholder value creation today or only matter at the portfolio level, but at the system level, that's a lot of your work with Jim Hawley. These universal owners, I mean, they're just after beta, as you've said. So you'd like to have information on that as well. It's not gonna fall under the remit of standard setters like you know what the SEC can do and what the ISSB could do, but I think having some standards on that and collaboration between these groups. So I was pleased that GRI, and the ISSB announced a collaboration agreement. I want to push back a little on the idea that there's a difference between
1: what people are going single and double materiality and where you say the SEC doesn't have authority, if the definition of material, this is for fraud um, in the United States, is information which in totality would affect what a reasonable investor would invest in. You know, people don't invest in single companies anymore. The determinant of the disclosure is the single company, but the determinant of materiality is the investor. And if I invest in the S&P 500, all that externality, what you call and what the alphabet soup of abbreviations that you mentioned to call double materiality or inside out materiality, meaning the company affecting the systems that comes back to want me because it affects the overall marketplace. And so you have this weird dichotomy that's going on now between no one invested a company, you invested in an index fund, you invested in ETF, you invested in a diversified portfolio. If an individual company can gain the system by extruding costs onto all those other companies, that's not good for me as an investor. So it is, in my mind at least, single it's sort of a feedback loop of materialities right that that you can no longer distinguish if you're a diversified investor if you what's come to be known as a universal owner you can no longer distinguish between single and double materiality because
0: i want to do best for
1: my portfolio not just for an individual company so look I, i
0: think it's a good pushback, um and i'll push back partially but not completely um i would say we take something like climate change you know it's hard to know what the difference is between single double materiality and then you kind of will put the scope three thing aside for a second you know the sec to its credit and then you know its mandate doesn't extend into private companies has basically said companies need to report on scope one and scope two don't, don't look at SASB and see if sasby says it's a material issue every company needs to report on this so to, to that extent i think you're absolutely right and i would agree with that then it gets trickier when you get into other things because like water and ecosystem services, right? Is that something that, you know, every company really affects and should be reporting on Um, if you get into sort of material sourcing and supply chain. So I think you'd need to kind of go down the list and even FRAC, which is very kind of aggressive around double materiality. I think it's a total of 14 standards and there's kind of four common things and there's some more specific ones. So um, I think you're right that it's not kind of as well-defined as I was suggesting as is, but I do think there are still, Some things that, you know, from the S and P 500 are kind of investing in an index, there are issues that are relevant to, you know, the universal owners across topics. I would put income inequality in that as well as kind of a system level issue. Uh, But I'm not sure that that all of them do.
1: By the way, your, your comment about corporate law, I think is spot on. When corporations were first created this idea of a joint stock funded, eternally live limited liability entity. It was so powerful and frightening that it took an act of parliament because we're back in europe or a royal charter or the equivalent to each one and each was for a particular purpose yeah and it had to be determined to be societal useful i mean even the father of economics adam smith cautioned against where we are today which is sort of they could do anything corporations are routine purposes anything legal he thought that was a prescription for societal failure I mean, this is adam smith saying Quote, to establish a joint stock company for any undertaking would certainly not be reasonable. Negligence and perfusion must always prevail more or less in the management of the affairs of such company. And it seems to me we've forgotten just how much of a gift society provides through allowing unlimited stock funding, limited liability to eternal lives. We no longer require a corporation to provide a societally useful quid for that quote. Professor Alex Edmonds at London Business School talks about financial profit should be a subset of societal profit. Do you think there is, first of all, I assume you agree with that fundamentally, but if not, tell me. But secondly, can disclosure address that in some way? So first
0: of all, I don't remember that part of Adam Smith. I haven't read him in a long time. And that is just fabulous. So so tell me what page it's on. And I think you should write this up We'll write this up together or something. Cause it's precisely right. I mean, in the beginning it was like, okay, here's your charter to build a canal and you get 30 years, you know, and you make the investment and you collect the tolls and then we kind of, you know, we wrap it up. So this, this joint stock company that can do whatever it wants and live forever. An enormous step from that. And, you know, I think we're seeing the consequences, particularly, when we see how large the large corporations have become and the concentration of economic power. So I think invoking Adam Smith and sort of bringing this into discussion around purpose and all the confounding that is happening on that, oh, purpose means you're kind of trading off, you know, shareholder returns and this and that. I mean, Colin Mayer writes about this, right? You know, kind of purpose is delivered profitable solutions for people and planet without making the world a worse place. And that's kind of the problem that we're running into now. I don't think reporting can solve that problem. I think reporting can't highlight the problem. Um, I think that's why the kind of classic sustainability reporting that's in the double materiality brings attention to it. I think that that's good because what makes things single materiality in this institutional structure we operate in is actions by NGOs. I mean, and they're becoming increasingly sophisticated and I think, and quite effective so they can make an issue important to shareholders. So I think giving them that information to be able to do so, but that's kind of an indirect way of getting this corporate form problem that we're talking about and what Adam Smith said. And that's why I think we need to caution ourselves, even in the EU, that's gonna have its double materiality. My fear on that is that it's gonna become a tick the box exercise because, you know, it's so complicated and they're asking for so much. Is it really going to change corporate behavior in a fundamental way? Uh, that I'm skeptical about. So I said earlier, you seem to be in the
1: middle of many of these disclosure um, debates. And to be fair, you're sort of an equal opportunity offender. You get slammed <laughs> from, seem you seem get be, slammed oh, from the see. left and the right. Why? <laughs> yeah. and, and and do you think there's anything we do to bring everyone together again, or at least get them talking to each other rather than at each other?
0: I mean, it's a great question. I think it's an important question. And it's actually sort of a new mission of mine. So. I think you read my little piece, the topology of hate for ESG. And I kind of have these four sets in the topology. As I said, I was a math major at MIT and some people like this language. And so people are mad at me about this language. I and mean, every time I turn around, John, somebody's mad at me about something. So I said, look, there's the sustainability the Taliban and nothing's ever good enough for that. No matter what you do. It's like, you know, you're the devil incarnate and there's the sustainability flat earth. This is like you say, ESG sustainability and you're like anti-American and you're trying to destroy the American industry. Then you've got sort of the well-meaning sustainability advocates that become opportunists and make all these claims. It's greenwashing by companies, by fund managers. So it loses credibility. And then there's this small subset that I think, uh, I'm personally in, you're in, of so-called sustainability pragmatists. And so how do you kind of create a conversation that's more authentic than the opportunists, but not as sort of politicizing it the way you've got, you know, on the other extremes, with the Taliban and the flat earthers. And I'm gonna try. So here's my little story on that. I wrote a piece in my column on Forbes.com called Grift Capitalism, the GOP's brilliant strategy for ripping off ordinary Americans. And it kind of goes through, you know, kind of some of the ideology and this Vivek Ramaswamy and, you know, the woke ink and da da. da, da, da. And Mike Pence railing on about engine number one. And I got I got an email from a from a Republican friend of mine. He said, Bob. I'm really disappointed in you writing that article. Um, you just putting fuel on the fire and uh, that's not helpful. And, um, you know, why do you want to make enemies with the GOP when Kevin McCarthy is going to be the next speaker of the house? And then he didn't agree with some of my opinions about the Supreme Court and some of the recent judgments. So I, I wrote back, I said, yeah, fair point, you know, let's talk. So I am genuinely and seriously going to make an effort with my friend who's well-connected to go down to DC in the fall, whenever the timing is appropriate. I'll meet with business associations. I'll meet with, you know, important Republican staffers from the Congress and House of Representatives in the Senate, uh, mostly to listen, kind of what what are your concerns? You know, you're defining this way. Is it really that way? And we'll see. So is it going to work? I don't know. It's interesting. Most of my liberal friends that have written me said this is a good idea. Some, some are more hopeful than others that it's going to matter. Um, probably the people that think it's a bad idea, you know, haven't written me. Um, but I'm thinking, what, what is the choice to just have this polarization on both extremes where they're each playing to their own crowd and there's no conversation in the middle? That's not helping any of us, whether we're in a red state or a blue state. So so I'm going to try. Let's get to some personal issues. You were a longtime professor
1: at Harvard School. And now you're at the same Business School at Oxford. They're obviously two of the most prestigious business schools at two of the most prestigious universities in the world. Do you see any major commonalities or differences between the two, aside from academic rigor? Is there a different way of learning or breadth or anything else when you compare the two experiences? If I compare the institutions,
0: one of the things that's striking to me is just the difference in wealth. Harvard Business School is rich, right? I mean, it's just got almost unlimited funds in terms of what it can do. There's a division of research that, you know, the faculty apply to and you get money to kind of do your thing. They really discourage you from raising money because like, we're trying to get a hundred million dollars out of this guy. You know, don't kind of screw it up by getting a million. Um, It's pretty self-contained. It's probably in the top 10 in the country in terms of endowment, if you are to look at it. Uh, Saeed is a much newer business school. It's not nearly as well capitalized. It's much smaller in terms of faculty. It's probably got less than half the faculty. It's a one-year MBA as opposed to a two-year MBA. Uh, I think it's probably a little bit better integrated with the other parts of the university because to some extent it needs to be. And the previous dean, a friend of mine, Peter Tofano, created this one plus one program. So I think what you've got with Saeed is a lot of potential under a great brand of Oxford and it's got a new Dean. Uh, But I think there's issues around faculty salaries and there's issues around endowment. And one thing I'd say about both schools, the question you haven't asked is because people always say, well, you know, kind of the business schools are training the future leaders of tomorrow. And so that's going to kind of fix everything. Well, not necessarily. The Dean can't tell any particular faculty person what to do or what's in their course. So, and we've had this conversation, you know, we'll target the finance faculty. It's changing, but for the most part, the work that you and I do is just not considered credible or legitimate. It doesn't fit into their ideology. It doesn't fit into their models and their theories and the referee journals they have to publish in. So you see individual faculty, I think doing good work. You see a lot of interest in sort of elective courses around sustainability by whatever name you know, kind of circular economy or climate change. Do you see in that core curriculum, the core marketing course, the core organizational behavior course, the core production course, the core accounting course, the core finance course, do you see these issues that companies and investors are grappling with? Is that being embedded, you know, in the material and the teaching programs? And the answer to that is no, from what I can tell. My joke I have on this is that Man, I have a PhD in sociology, as I said, so I don't really know anything. I don't, I don't have a degree in economics or accounting or finance. And for the longest time, you know, I probably still can't I can get a meeting, which is about any investor, asset owner, asset manager. Not because I'm that smart or that important. It's like, this is something they care about and I'll talk to them. I mean, this is the great joke. You've got all these finance professors teaching investment management. These are the people that really have qualifications, one would think, that the investment community should be talking to. But, you know, these people don't want to talk to the investment community. They're trying to grapple with all the stuff and the finance professors are going, oh, yeah, you know, kind of efficient markets and, you know, this journal and that journal and the other kind of thing. I mean, it's kind of, it cracks me up, but it's also sad. But, you know, changing that is hard. Second personal question. Your LinkedIn profile
1: begins with, and I quote, dedicated weightlifter, capital market activist, focused on improving corporate reporting to enhance ESG integration by companies and investors. End quote. Okay, we get the capital market part, the corporate report of the issue. Tell
0: us about the dedicated weightlifter part. Well, this is the most important question for me personally, John. So I really appreciate you asking that. So here's the story. As I said, I went to MIT, so I'm not a natural athlete, just almost by definition. If I was, I wouldn't have gone to MIT, you know, always been reasonably fit. My son went to Princeton was on the crew team, so he doesn't have any foot speed. You know, he can't play baseball or soccer. Turns out to be quite good at crew. So he got some weights one summer to stay in shape. I'd never lifted weights in my life. He said, you ought to try it. I'm 60 years old. I've never lifted weights in my life. He said, you ought to try it. I'll try it. Bench press, never got very good at the bench press. I've got weak arms, whatever. Squat, pretty good, you know. Um, Deadlift, you just kind of bend down in a squat and pick it up and stand up straight with your arms hanging down. Turned out to be my best lift. So I thought, man, you know, one day I'd like to get to 300 pounds. It almost seemed like it was an existentially impossible amount of weight for a human being to get off the ground and stand up straight. It's like, it's much mental as physical. I nailed 300 and I thought, you know, let's go for 400 mixed blessing. COVID comes along. So I'm not traveling. I go to my son, 400 pounds. He goes, there's the Magnuson Ortmayer deadlift program. So I download the spreadsheet every Monday, Magnuson Ortmayer. You do this set and you up it by 20 pounds. So I think it was at the end of 2019, I hit 405 a couple times and hit 410. Just to boast when I'm on my game, I can do 10 reps at 300, you know, which is like a killer. So what I've learned is that as you get older, as I am John, as you are too, not as old as me. Weightlifting is actually really important, not only for your bones but your know, muscles, but also for your bones. So, um, so I'm pretty dedicated. The bench, I don't have high expectations. I'm not trying to push the limits. You know, with the squat, I can do 230, 240. Deadlift is still my favorite. Do you lift weights? I do, I do. In
1: in in addition to the physical benefits, a lot of weightlifters find sort of mental clarity in it, like you have to, fo- because if you don't do it right at those weights, you hurt yourself and so yep. you can only focus on one thing at a time. That does, does it help you, um, in terms of mood and clarity, or do you, do you sometimes see the, uh, flat earthers and the sustainability Taliban when you're dropping the weights on the mat and vision their face under it? Or <laughs>
0: <laughs> to be honest, when I'm lifting, I don't really think about this other stuff much at all. As you said, you really exactly. Think- You know, it's like, it's just cleansing. There's that 90 minutes, three times a week. And then I try and do some aerobic stuff, Put all of this aside go, I've got a carriage house, I got weights at the top of the carriage house. And you just, you feel exhilarated when you're done. And then if I don't lift for a couple of weeks, you know, I feel a little sluggish, you know, kind of my mood's a little down. Sometimes, so I think it's, I think it's mentally healthy as well as physically good for as a person. Let's, uh, finish with some short Q
1: and a, what music do
0: you listen to? Gee, I am Spotify, like a wide range of music. Um, I've been going through sort of a sixties and fifties revival. Uh, I've been doing like a beach boys revival and, um, I always work out to Creedence Clearwater revival. Uh, lately I've been listening to kind of mellow Wyndham Hill. In the morning, I just pull up something, you know, on the internet of like coffee, morning jazz. Not really all that current with the current groups. Maybe it's my age. Love David Bowie. You know, love the Rolling Stones. So it's kind of all over the map. Do you read for fun, like fiction or nonfiction
1: unrelated to your field? What are you reading?
0: To be honest, hardly ever. Hardly ever. I I, I read a book on, I forget the title, but it's basically about England from 400 to 1066 AD. And that was good because, you know, my worst day is better than the best day, the happiest King ever had in those 666 years. But I don't do much reading. My wife and I are sort of big into, you know, Netflix series, love Scandinavian detective noir right now. We're watching Babylon Berlin, which takes place in Berlin in 1929. So that's really cool. So I should probably watch less TV and read more, but I don't.
1: You could be on vacation right now.
0: Where would you be? Oh boy. Great question. It would be one of two places. It would be Scotland. It would be Western Scotland. We had a home in the Western Highlands in a little village called Glenelg. Remote and hard to get to Had it for 10 years. And our children loved it. They were teenagers. So I love Scotland and I love Stockholm. So if I was to get on a plane today, it's easier to get to Stockholm. My wife on her mother's side, you know, Swedish heritage. I mean, on purpose, we have gone to Stockholm in November for a holiday. So that's how much I like Stockholm. I don't just go there in the summer when there's sunlight. I'm happy with it when the days are four hours long and it's kind of rainy. Love Stockholm. I'm not a beach guy as you can tell. What what makes you love Stockholm so much? It's a very walkable city. It's a pretty city. It's on the water. Um, I kind of have a lot of friends there. I like sort of the model of Sweden, you know, they've got sort of much more, I mean, it's kind of the stereotype of sort of socialist, but it works pretty well. It's all transparent, you know, how much everybody else is making. You don't have the same kind of huge gap between what the CEO makes and, you know, the person on the shop floor or even middle management. The food is great. I find it is just a very kind of warm and comfortable place to be.
1: Last question. If you could magically
0: speak into everyone in the world's ear, what would you tell them? I mean, this will sound trite, but it would be, think of something that matters to you in the world that you'd like to see changed. And what do you think you can do to make that happen?
1: Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with our special guest, Professor Robert Eccles. Bob is an expert on integrated reporting, a thinker about companies, their role in both profitability and society, and a leader on how companies and investors can create sustainable strategies. Thanks much, Bob. Thank you, John. Good to see you. You've been listening to Spark Networks Outside In with John Mukundig, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingya, John Lukomik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.